Good afternoon, St. Paul's. This is a great crowd for a, a summer, summer day. This is impressive. It's so good to see all you guys here. Wow. Well, if you were here last week, you know that we took a break from our series in the book of James. Uh, but today we're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. Uh, just in case you missed it or you need a recap, the last passage we looked at uh, was about how we need to both listen to the Word of God and do the Word of God. Often we're tempted just to listen to it, but not actually do that, do what the Word says. And we talked about how there's an absurdity to that. Um, James says it's like, it's like looking in a mirror, but then just walking away and forgetting what you look like. And James says that it's like looking in a mirror, um, because Scripture is like a mirror. Because we need it in order to see ourselves as we actually are. Uh, we can't, if we're trying to look at ourselves, we can't just pull out our eyes and turn them around and, and then see what we look like, right? We need a mirror in order to see what we look like. And scripture for us functions as a mirror. We look into that mirror and it tells us who we really are. And every time we look into that mirror, it tells us things that we need to adjust. Uh, so listening to scripture, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing that you've got some dirt on your face, maybe you have some food stuck in your teeth, and you need to do something about that, right? It would be crazy to look in a mirror and see that you had food on your face and in your teeth and, and not do anything about it. But when we listen to the word and we don't actually do it, it's like we look in the mirror, we see that, and then we just walk away. And we also talked about uh, some of the actions that the word calls us to do. Uh, things like be quick to listen, uh, slow to speak, slow to become angry, Keep a tight rein on your tongue. Look after the lonely and disadvantaged. And this week, we're going to look at another action that the Word tells us to do, which is do not show favoritism. Do not show favoritism. And this is a really important subject, uh, because we have a natural tendency as human beings to play favorites when it comes to how we treat people. We all do. Um, I, I don't mean to sound accusatory to anyone in spe specifically here. I'm talking to myself as well. This is just a tendency that we all have to play favorites. Uh, playing favorites is a very big piece of spinach stuck in our teeth. And when we look into the mirror of scripture, it says, you got to do something about that. It's pretty nasty. All right, so let's look at what James has to say. This is uh, verse 2. Uh, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, let me say a quick prayer before we read it. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for uh, the privilege that we have of gathering together and looking at your word. Uh, I thank you for each person here, Lord. I thank you for uh, gathering each one of us into this place, God. Uh, it's good to be together. It's good to study your word. It's good to worship. And Lord, we pray that as we're here gathered together, God, that you would speak to us. Um, we're here because we want to learn something. Uh, we want uh, your spirit to transform our hearts and our minds. Uh, we want to know more what it means to follow you and love you and, uh, and to be uh, salt and light into it in the world. <clears throat> so I pray, God, that you would, you would meet us, Lord. Um, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, help us to be attentive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. 
My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated against yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so it's a big passage. Let's go back to the top and talk a little about favoritism. Now, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with having favorites in certain areas, right? Nothing wrong with having a favorite food, favorite music, favorite holiday. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Favoritism, the kind of favoritism that James is talking about, has to do with how we treat people. And James gives us a very clear example of what favoritism looks like. A rich man comes into the assembly, and he gets royal treatment. He gets a great seat. But then a poor man comes into the same assembly, and he doesn't even get a seat. And if he does get one, he's told, sit at my feet. Now, the word for favoritism in the Greek has many syllables. Uh, it is prosopolempsia. And this is interesting, what it means literally. It actually means to receive someone according to their face. To receive someone according to their face. So favoritism is when we give certain people preference over others, not because of any internal quality that they have, uh, but because of some external thing, like the quality of their clothes or their physical attractiveness, or their race, or their age, or their nationality. Uh, favoritism is what happens on the bus in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, when black people are told to give up their seats for white people. Favoritism is what happens in middle school when everybody wants to be friends with the kid who has name brand clothes uh, but everyone avoids the kid with the funny haircut and the worn-out hand-me-downs. Favoritism is what happens when uh, we care about the well-being of Americans, but not really about people from other countries. Uh, it happens when we support foreign policies that are designed to keep America safe, but that at the same time might actually harm people in other places. And favoritism, at least in some cases, 
is what happens maybe when someone unfamiliar comes to church, but no one talks to them. And favoritism is such a part of human nature that we do it unconsciously a lot of the time. It's not a deliberate thing. Sometimes it is, but a lot of the time it's not. Most of us would probably say that we don't actively discriminate against other people based on their external qualities. Uh, but whether we want to admit it or not, chances are we do. One prime example of favoritism in our society is racism. Now, I want to be honest about something. Um, not too long ago, I was someone who liked to think that racism was primarily a thing in America's past. Um, but over the last few years, I've, come to, I've had to come to terms with the fact that racism is something that really is alive and well in our country. Um, and what really opened up my eyes, I mean, some of it was, was reading books about it and that sort of thing and watching things on the news, but the, the thing that really opened up my eyes was when I was in seminary, I had a lot of conversations with people of other races. And I got to hear about their experiences. And what was amazing was when I saw tears well up in their eyes or when I saw them feeling hurt or angry because they were recounting experiences that they had had. And I knew there's no argument against that kind of emotion. If you have that kind of emotion, it exists, it's present for a reason. And I was embarrassed that I was not aware that I had among me at my, at my seminary uh, friends of other races, and I had no clue what kind of hurt and pain they were carrying from experiences in their past. And so I finally had to come to a point where I really acknowledged, wow, yeah, no, this is a, this is a real thing. Racism is real. It still happens. It's still going on. You know, certainly as a country, we have made progress. There's no, there's no doubt about that. But we still have a long way to go. I saw an article recently about the effects of race on hiring policies. And it said that a, a Harvard professor, a sociologist named Deva Pager, has done meticulous research on uh, this subject. And the article says, I'll quote from it right here, it says, in one widely cited study, Pager sent carefully selected test applicants with equivalent resumes to apply for low-level jobs with hundreds of employers. Ms. Pager found that criminal convictions for black men seeking employment were virtually impossible to overcome in many contexts, partly because convictions reinforce powerful long-standing stereotypes. Now you might say, well, hold on a second here. That's not really favoritism, because these are men who have been convicted of a crime. They're not being turned away because they're black. They're being turned away because they've been convicted of a crime. Well, I'm going to read a little further. This is where the favoritism really comes in. <clears throat> The stigma of a criminal record was less damaging for white testers. In fact, those who said that they were just out of prison were as likely to be called back for a second interview as black men who had no criminal history at all. So to put it simply, Pager says, being black in America today is just about the same as having a felony conviction in terms of one's chances of finding a job. Wow. Now, those of us, uh, like myself, who don't experience or deal with racism on a regular basis might have a hard time believing that that's true. 
But I really don't think we should be that surprised, to be honest. Because we all admit that just 50 years ago in this country, there were official laws in some states mandating segregation, right? So why would we find it hard to believe that that same prejudice would exist just in a less formal way now? I mean, it's only been a generation or two. That's really not, really not that long. So it really shouldn't be a surprise. It, it, should be, it should make us sad, but it shouldn't really be shocking. And it certainly shouldn't be shocking for us as followers of Christ, because we know that the human heart is tainted by sin. And we know that one of those sins is favoritism. It's this tendency to judge and discriminate on the basis of external things. But what should be shocking to us is when favoritism takes place within the church. I mean, we should expect to see favoritism in the world, right? It's the world. Not that we shouldn't fight against it and try to remedy it, but we should kind of expect it. But not in the church. The church should be the place where favoritism goes to die. The church should be the place where people of every economic class and color and race can come together and be treated as brothers and sisters. The church should be the one place where a person who is poor in the eyes of the world can come and be treated with honor and respect. And, on the other hand, a person who might be a celebrity in the eyes of the world can come and be treated like a regular person. You know, not like some sort of man-god. But sadly, the church isn't always like that. In fact, sometimes, I think the world sees the church as a place where favoritism thrives rather than dies. And in James's day, that's what was happening. Favoritism was leading people to give better treatment to the wealthy than to the poor. And what James does in this passage is he gives us several reasons why favoritism is wrong. And that's what we're going to do for the rest of today. Um, we're going to identify four of those reasons that he gives not to show favoritism. So the first reason he gives is because of who God is. Because of who God is. In verse 1, he says, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And what I want us to notice is that little phrase, our glorious Lord. Now, it might seem like James is just putting that phrase in there simply for the sake of reverence, you know, our glorious Lord. But I think there's more to it. I think James is pointing out that there's a link between believing in a glorious God and not showing favoritism. Because when you believe in a glorious God, a God who is unimaginably more powerful and good and loving than any human being, then you're going to be a lot less likely to be impressed by people. The rich and powerful person who crosses your path isn't going to be able to have as much power over you if you know the glorious Lord. Because if you know the glorious Lord, you're going to recognize that no human glory comes even close to his glory, right? Not even close. The psalmist wrote that when he considered the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which the Lord had put in place, he thought, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. See, when we consider who the Lord is, the extent of his power and majesty, that's a very reasonable question. What is man? Right? Even if that man is wealthy and good-looking and influential, 
compared to the glory of God, he's got nothing. So why favor one man over the other, one human being over the other? Especially when that same glorious God, that God who is so much more glorious than any human being, tells us, do not show favoritism. Right? So having the ability not to play favorites starts with recognizing God for who he is. He's so much more glorious than the most glorious of human beings. But not only that, God himself doesn't show favoritism. And we know that because Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of the character of God. And Jesus Christ didn't show favoritism for the rich, or the good-looking, or the people high in status. If anything, he seemed to show extra concern for the poor. Uh, Jesus actually started his earthly ministry by standing up in the synagogue and quoting from Isaiah. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me to, um, <clears throat> because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That was how he kicked off the whole thing. That was his inauguration to his ministry. And his ministry was consistent with that. He cared about the poor. He embraced the poor. So we shouldn't show favoritism because of who God is. But closely related to that, we shouldn't show favoritism because of what God has done. Because of what God has done. James says in verse 5, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Of course, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes, he has. And that's what Jesus shows us. Because Jesus embraced those who are poor in the eyes of the world. Jesus gave his life to redeem anyone who would have faith in him, rich or poor. And we can see that when we look at the church, that many, many people who are poor in the eyes of the world have faith in Christ. Now there is one thing I want to clarify, uh, which is James is not saying that people are saved because they're poor. Being poor is not some sort of guarantee that you're in good standing with God or in the kingdom. I mean, if it was, then the last thing we would want to do is help anyone out of poverty, right? Because <laughs> then we'd be taking away their, their assurance of salvation. Uh, what James is saying is not that the kingdom is promised uh, to the poor, but it's promised to those who love him, right? And to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Now, the poor are often in a better position than the rich to love the Lord. Now, you might remember we talked about this a sev several weeks ago. Uh, because the poor are less distracted by material things. Uh, the, poor, the poor have less to lose when it comes to following Christ. They have less to give up. And so it is often easier for them to love the Lord with their whole heart. But there is nothing inherently uh, saving about being poor. And there's nothing inherently damning about being rich either. It's important for us to recognize that. But the point that James is making is that it is clear that many of the people who love the Lord in the world, in the church, are also poor in the eyes of the world. And so we know that God does not show favoritism to the rich. This is what God has done. God has saved many poor people. And if God doesn't show favoritism, neither should his church. Third reason that James says we should not show favoritism is because of what God's commanded us to do. So in verse 8, James reminds us of something that he calls the royal law, 
which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And what he's talking about here is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees when they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is the first and greatest commandment. But then he added, and the second greatest commandment is this, love your neighbor as yourself. So the royal law, as James calls it, is what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment in all of Scripture. And what James is pointing out is that you can't follow the royal law if you're practicing favoritism. Can't do it. The second greatest commandment and favoritism are completely at odds with each other. Because favoritism always leaves someone feeling unloved. And James makes a really important point in this passage. He says that even if you keep all the laws in the Old Testament, if you fail to uphold just one law, especially the second greatest commandment, right? Then you are a lawbreaker. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. In other words, you can go to great lengths to be as holy and as pure as possible. Uh, you can try and follow every detail of the Old Testament law. You can be sure to eat all the right foods, keep yourself ceremonially clean, be sexually pure, not mix the wrong fabrics. But if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, if you practice favoritism, then guess what? You're a lawbreaker. You're guilty. Ironically, I think that some of the religious communities that on the surface are most concerned about not breaking God's law are also communities where sometimes the royal law ends up getting ignored. Um, I was reading an article recently about a private non-denominational Christian school in South Carolina. It's called Bob Jones University. Uh, maybe you've heard of it. It, uh, it, it has about 3,000 students today, and it's been around for about 90 years. And uh, Bob Jones University has a reputation for being concerned about laws. Uh, students are supposed to avoid any kind of entertainment that could be considered immodest, or uh, that has any profanity, or that portrays philosophical ideas that are contrary to, to scripture. Uh, men are, there's a strict dress code, you know, men have to uh, dress in, in nice clothes all the time. Women have to wear skirts. Uh, no one's allowed to listen to any contemporary music at all. Uh, if students are dating, they're only allowed to meet in certain areas on campus and, and that sort of thing. Um, so there's a lot of laws that have been set up at this university to guard and protect the student's purity and holiness. But despite all this concern about laws, Bob Jones University refused to even admit black students until the 1970s. And until the year 2000, interracial dating was prohibited at the school. Until the year 2000. I think that's ironic. Because you know, in the midst of all that concern about laws, where was the concern for the royal law? The second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Despite being so concerned about law, they were being lawbreakers. 
And I don't say that to condemn Bomb Jones University. I hesitated to even specifically mention uh, the school because I don't want to, you know, throw anyone under the bus. But I still, I still do condemn the practice of not admitting black students and being discriminatory in that, in that way. And, um, and I thank God that they've changed that policy. But what I'm trying to say is that we can have lots of laws in place, but if we're not obeying the royal law, if we have no concern about that, we are being lawbreakers. And we need to recognize that. And the church that James was writing to was in a situation kind of like Bob Jones, pre-2000. Uh, they were concerned about following certain parts of the law, but they were disregarding the royal law by showing favoritism to the rich. And James reminds them, that's law-breaking. And there's not much value in following the law if you're going to disregard the royal law. Finally, James gives us one more reason not to show favoritism. Reason number four, because we are going to be judged. We are going to be judged. Verses 12 and 13, I think, are, uh, are really interesting. They say, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, James is saying, we're all going to be judged by God. And do you know what is going to be the mark of people who really know the Lord? Uh, the people who have really been redeemed the people who have really been transformed by his grace, it's whether or not they're merciful. Mercy is the mark of the redeemed. Now that raises the question, what exactly is, is mercy? Clearly it's a really big deal, so we, we better figure out what it is. Well, today when we talk about mercy, we tend to talk about it mainly in what you might call judicial terms. Uh, we think of mercy as what happens when someone doesn't get the punishment that they deserve. So someone commits a crime, but the judge gives them a light sentence. That's what we think of as mercy. The judge was merciful. But in this passage, mercy isn't limited to escaping a deserved punishment. That's not all it is. That's a form of mercy, but mercy is broader than that. The Greek word for mercy here is elios. And this is the definition. It is... Oh, sorry. Uh, kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. So notice there's nothing in there about whether that affliction is deserved or undeserved. It's just kindness or good, goodwill towards the miserable and the afflicted. So what mercy is for James is concern and care for those who are usually not favored. By the world. Concern and care for the have-nots, uh, for the people of poor reputation and low income, for the people who have nothing of worldly value to offer us. Concern and care for those people, that's mercy. And it's that quality, that care and concern, that James says is the mark of a redeemed person. Now judgment, in contrast to mercy, is what we do when we discriminate against those same people. Uh, and one way that we discriminate is by saying things like, 
Well, these people of low status and low income, they probably did something to deserve it anyway. And what James tells us to remember is mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, it is so much better to be merciful than to be judgmental. Is it true that sometimes people who are miserable and unfavored are in that position because they made bad choices? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes that's the case. Often it's not. But either way, mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment, say, you know, looks upon somebody who's suffering from AIDS and thinks, well, this person was probably promiscuous, and so they kind of deserve what's happening to them. It's God's judgment on them, so I don't know if it really makes sense for me to help them. But mercy looks upon that same person and says, however you came to be in this position, I love you, and I want to help alleviate your pain, both the pain in your body and the pain in your soul. And James tells us that it is the merciful response that is the mark of a redeemed person, of someone who knows and loves the Lord. It's the merciful response that upholds the royal law. Why is mercy the mark of the redeemed? Why is it such a critical indicator of whether or not someone knows the Lord? And the reason is because those who really know the Lord know that it's by grace that they've been saved. When we know the Lord, we know that we haven't saved ourselves. We know that, like the faculty or leaders at Bob Jones University, we've been lawbreakers. We, too, have been lawbreakers. In one way or another, we have all been lawbreakers. And because of that, we know that it's only because of the Lord's mercy that we've been rescued from our sin. And when we really know that, when that truth has really seeped into our souls, that transforms us from being judgmental people into merciful people. Because we know that we too need mercy. But we have to realize how merciful God has been to us. I think that's the key. In one of Jesus' parables, he says that the kingdom of God is like a man who owed his master 10,000 talents. But his master took pity on him and canceled the debt. Now, 10,000 talents is an extraordinary amount of money. It's about the amount of money that the average person in Jesus' day would have made if he worked for 150,000 years. That's 3,000 lifetimes. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a master who looks at a debt that massive and is willing to say, it's okay, I'll let it go. So becoming merciful people begins with us believing and receiving that kind of mercy, with recognizing that it's there and it's available for us, and allowing that to transform us. It's that mercy that has the power to make us people of mercy, if we let it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy for us. We thank you for the way that you displayed it through Christ and through what Christ did on the cross. God, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know 
about that love, doesn't know about what Christ offered, and um, that's all new to them, God. I pray that you would speak to them now. I pray that you would help them to, to uh, ask more questions and, and seek you out, Lord. Uh, and for those of us who do know about the love that you've offered, God, and what you've done, I pray that it would be transformative for us, God. I pray that you would help us to be people of mercy, not of judgment, people who uh, long and, and desire to care for the people in the world who have nothing to offer us um, in a worldly sense, who have nothing to offer in terms of status or, or wealth or power. Um, and we pray for those people, God. We pray because uh, we acknowledge that some of us may be <laughs> among those people or feel like we're among those people right now, Lord. But we thank you that even in our poorness, God, that you have exalted us that, uh, that you have rescued us, Lord, and, and, and that you have called us to be your own. God, I pray that we would be people who do not practice favoritism, Lord, but extend your love, your mercy to all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.